If you have a Bible, open up with us to the book of Revelation chapter 2. This will be our fourth week in Revelation. We covered chapter 1 in two weeks and then Ephesus last week. And this week we're actually going to cover two churches. It's probably the only week we will be doing that, but we'll be covering both uh, Smyrna and Pergamum. Smyrna is, I believe, the briefest of all the churches. It's just a few verses, and uh, we plan to cover both of those uh, now. Yeah, it has been great to study these chapters. I, these are chapters I, we're all kind of familiar with probably to some degree or another, but I've never done a deep study of these particular churches like this, and it's, it's been really just a rich study and uh, really an enjoy, enjoyable part of, of, of doing this. So, Jerry, can you open us in prayer, and then we will uh, we'll jump in. Yes, sir. Father, we want to thank you. Um, you have um, blessed us way more than what we can even ask or imagine. Um, Lord, we are so grateful for your word for your son, that you've given us all we need for life and godliness through your word and through your son. We thank you that you, who gave us your own son, will, along with him, now graciously give us all things. Um, we know that that is um, sanctification as we study this, justification. Uh, we pray for those who need a savior. And Lord, we just ask that you would use your word to do surgery on our hearts, encourage us, convict us, um, just as you see fit. And we are so grateful um, for these letters um, that um, the Lord Jesus um, has given us um, to um, grow from, and uh, we commit this night to you in the discussion afterwards, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we read the text, if you look on the screen here, and this is nothing magical, but this is just sort of a basic outline for how these letters work. So, uh, in fact, I'm going to stand up again just to, just to point at the screen. So for all seven letters to the churches, you have a, the basic same pattern repeats. And the more you read the letters, the more you will notice this pattern. It, is, it becomes very apparent. But every single letter to the seven churches begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, right? And then you always have the words of, followed by a title for Jesus that comes from the first chapter. So what, you remember the first chapter, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, all those descriptors? Uh, the beginning and the end, all those things. Well, Jesus picks out one of his attributes or titles from chapter one for each church and handpicks it to best fit that church's needs. So whatever that church needs to hear about Jesus, the, he highlights that aspect of his character, uh, the words of whatever he, it will say. And then every single letter says, I know. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I know your works is the most common, but sometimes he'll say, I know your poverty, or I know your tribulation, whatever he may say. Every single time he says, I know. And then in five of the seven letters, Jesus gives encouragement to start out, like with Ephesus. You guys are bearing up. You haven't given in. And then in five of the seven letters, there's a rebuke followed by an explicit call to repentance. The word repent appears over and over in these sections. So five of the seven churches, he rebukes and calls them to repentance. So you can see three of them are a mixed bag, right, between, between positive and negative. Two of them only bad, two of them only good, three of them both good and bad. Let me just say, let me say this about that. All these churches are not that far apart, you know. I mean, these are all in one walking area, and yet churches not that far away from each other some of them planted by perhaps some of the same people, we don't know for sure, they can be in very different places in terms of their health. So you can have two churches 50 miles apart, right down the road from each other, and they could be in dramatically different places in terms of their own health. Number six, every single letter says something like, the one who conquers gets, or to the one who conquers, and then there's always some future heavenly reward. And that reward is always handcrafted for that particular church. 
And then every single letter has an ending somewhere near the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice how that's said to every individual church, that it's for the church is plural. So what Jesus says to each church is for every church. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that, that format is just something to keep in mind as we even read today's couple of texts. So Greg, could you read for us verses 8 all the way through 17? Yep, be happy to. All right, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you were rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So again, if you, if you look at the screen again here, uh, you can just see this is modern day where Smyrna was, and uh, you can see an artist's depiction of kind of what the place looked like back at the time of the New Testament with their, um, uh, you can see here their, yeah, the harbor and the agora where the marketplace was, and then you have uh, their, their theater here. But that's, that's an artist's depiction of what Smyrna uh, looked like at the time, uh, the, around the time this letter was written. So we'll keep that on the screen, and we'll do another one of these when we get to Pergamum in a few minutes. Uh, Greg, could you just start us off here with verse 8, the, the introduction to this letter? Yeah, again, we'll read it. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Um, again, Jesus here, this is a reference to his deity, drawing again from um, chapter one, which draws from Isaiah, where God himself says, I am the first and the last. Uh, this is very clearly here, one, another place where Jesus is just as, as clearly and plainly as possible, showing that he is God alongside the Father and the Spirit. Um, but also very significant for Smyrna in particular, he says, who died and came to life. Um, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus um, dying and then coming to life as a way of conquering, of overcoming, is, is not just for Jesus, it's also a pattern that is kind of set for believers as well, which you see, we'll, we'll draw some more attention to that. Also, other places in Revelation, that dying and coming to life, like that is, is the pattern for believers. That's how we overcome. That's how we conquer Satan. That's how we conquer the world. Um, but Jesus is obviously the first who did that, 
Um, and so he kind of sets the pattern. And because he came to life, we know, if you're a believer, uh, you know for sure that one day you will come to life in a new resurrected body that can never die, that can never be corrupted, and, and all, the, all the great stuff that comes along with that. But again, this has particular reference to the church in Smyrna because of the nature of, of what Jesus says to them. And, and jumping off that, I know this is so basic and obvious, but I still think it's worth saying basic, obvious things. We don't believe in Christianity because it suits our preferences or it's, it happens to be convenient for our lifestyle or it makes things easier or we just happen to enjoy it. The question with Christianity is not which religion suits my fancy, which worldview kind of fits with what I like naturally, which one really makes me feel like I'm me or whatever people might say today. Now, here, here's the question. Did Jesus historically die and rise from the dead? That, that's the question, right? Because if that is true, then even if what he says at times offends me, I don't have a choice but to accept it because he's the one who died and rose from the dead. He's the, conquer, he's the only one who's conquered death. And so the, the question of Christianity is an essential question about what really happened in actual history. Mm -hmm. This is not mythology. This is not a debate about what your favorite mythological story is. It's not legend. It's not, the, no. The question is 2,000 years ago, did, a, did Jesus of Nazareth get crucified under Pontius Pilate, get buried in a well-known tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that no one had ever used, and then on Sunday morning, was the tomb empty? Did Jesus make real bodily appearance to hundreds of people over 40 days and then ascend physically bodily into heaven, if that's true, and I think there is abundant, abundant evidence for this in all kinds of ways, then Christianity is true, period. And then we begin to adjust our life and feelings around the truth of Christianity. Does that make sense? So often we do it backwards. What suits my feelings is what I believe. That is a sad way to approach your worldview. But the question is what's true? What's historical? What actually happened? If Jesus rose, then we've got to bow the knee. We've got to find a way that by God's grace that our heart and our affections would catch up with what's actually true in history. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the first and the last. I died. I came to life. Either Jesus is speaking the truth or he's a liar. And those are the options you've got to deal with in a text like this. Yeah, that's a, the great part about loving the Lord Jesus is it's based on truth. You know, otherwise we are um, to be pitied above all men. I love verse 9 when we get here then, and uh, this was, I know your tribulation and your poverty that you, but you are rich. And, well, we need to come back to that. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not a, um, but are a synagogue um, of Satan. And so what, I loved what um, Kevin DeYoung said. Um, he said, we know three things, and we have been over these and over these and over these, but we will suffer, it will hurt, but Jesus will be there. And I thought, what a great that way to look at it. And so, like you're saying, if we're going by our feelings, then Christianity's probably not going to be our pick, because we will suffer, it will hurt, but Jesus is going to be there, and the news is great, finishes so well. Verse 9, Greg? Yeah, okay. Um, Verse nine is, is, you know, Mark mentioned, he says, I know this, I know this in all the letters. Think about what Jesus is saying he knows, like has this intimate acquaintance with. He's, it's not just like a, a, an academic head knowledge. This is like, you know, I, I get this kind of thing. He says, I know two things, your tribulation and your poverty. 
Um, and I, I like what you quoted from DeYoung because that's one of the questions we are all tempted to ask whenever we're going through extremely difficult times is, where is God? Does God care? Does God know? Is he even paying attention? And Jesus here, as he does in other places, um, especially in the church of Pergamum as well, it's, it's relevant, very relevant there. Um, he's like, look, I know what you're going through. It's not um, lost on me. I, I didn't forget about it. I didn't miss it. It's not somehow unimportant to me. I understand the, the trials that you're undergoing and, and the poverty that that brings you to, um, especially here in, in Smyrna, because you know, one of, one of the things Christians, you know, who had jobs were merchants, stuff like that. A lot of these merchant guilds were, you know, pagan idolatry, pagan worship was bound into these. And, you know, to be good standing members, you had to be willing to sacrifice and all of that. And when the pressure, you know, when Christianity became unpopular, the pressure would be put on and they'd say, you know, look, you, you either offer this pinch to our particular God that we worship is this guild, or you don't have a job anymore. And so Jesus is like, look, I understand you're suffering. Some of you have lost your, your ability to provide for your family because you were faithful to Jesus. I know your poverty. It's like, I know what you're going through. I get it. I see it. I understand every bit of it. But then the parentheses there, uh, that, that little section is so important. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. And we, we have to not fall prey to the mindset that says faithfulness to Jesus equals earthly prosperity. Because that is just not true. In our country, the way it's been set up, we have had a, a, a blessing to where if you do right, uh, at least historically here, you can tend to do well. If you, 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 know, you have good ethics and good business practice and you work hard, that kind of stuff, you, know, you can earn a good living. Um, and especially keep your faith on your sleeve. You know, I can do this as a Christian and people will respect me, this, that, and the other. Um, but that's not a promise in scripture. As long as we can enjoy an environment like that, we should. But in reality, for the majority of the world and the majority of church history, that has just not been the case. If you follow Christ faithfully, things aren't gonna go as well for you. It tends to be. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, and in terms of earthly riches, earthly success, Christians would be looked at as failures. I mean, look, you lost your job. You don't have your business anymore. Um, you know, you can't even feed your family. You're on the streets. You know, how, what, what's your God doing for you? And Jesus says, no, actually, if you suffer for me, you're actually only gaining greater riches, not riches in this world, but riches for the world to come. Thoughts yeah, I that? love it. Just the idea that our um, wealth has nothing to do with our bank account at all. If you're justified, if you know the Lord Jesus, you are rich. So that is a great little four-word parentheses right there. And, uh, and that is, that's each of us. And so I, I think we have to quit being crabby about our um, lack of uh, money, if it feels like that, or if somebody else has more than us. Um, we are rich in the Lord Jesus and Him alone. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a theologian from a long time ago said, for something to be yours means you can, you can if, if say you have a lot of money, you can, you can use that money, what you think is to your own advantage or to your own benefit. Well, think about this. If, Jerry, I'm going to go to Romans 8.28, okay? If Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work for our good in Christ, if that's true, 
Jerry would say, I shouldn't say if, since that's true, right? Since that's true, um, you understand that how much more rich could you be than every molecule in the universe being ordained by God to work for your eternal good? That, that's what, rich means things are working for your benefit, right? That's, that's what wealth is. You can turn things for your own benefit because you can make the decisions so that something benefits you. Well, what if God ordained that every molecule firing in all of history is working for your eternal good in Christ? You're the richest person in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, stop boasting about men. I follow this pastor. I follow that pastor. How about this? Paul says, uh, Paul is yours. Peter is yours. How about this? The world is yours. How about this? Christ is yours. The future is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. All are yours because you are Christ and Christ is God's. So Paul basically says, stop arguing about who's got more of this and who more of that. You've got everything, Christian. Like you've got everything already. Stop bragging about having some secondary thing. Like the, the wealth that we have in Christ is unimaginable. God is working empires for your good. That sounds like wealth to me, the real kind of wealth. Uh, your bank account might be small, but God is working your, your poverty for your good. And so if everything is for your eternal joy and everything is working for your eternal benefit, you're the richest person in the world. It's actually the rich unbeliever who I feel sorry for because they think they got stuff working for their good, but they don't actually know what good is with a capital G. And so the, 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 Jesus is saying, you look poor. You look like you're in tribulation, and you are in many ways, but truly you are rich. You have what is truly wealth, which is the righteousness of Christ and all that God has for us in Christ. Can I read a, a couple of verses from 1 John, kind of hitting at this from a slightly different angle? It says, y'all know this, 1 John two fifteen. do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in life, pride of, in possessions, literally, um, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And listen to this. This is why we can't judge our riches based on earthly possessions and earthly successes. Why? Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Meaning all the stuff that you could have or keep in this world is passing away. It's going to be gone one day. There's not going to be any more of it. It's going to be a new world that God's going to make. A uh, whole new new creation. And if your hope is in this world, then all that you can hold on to will be gone. If your hope is in Christ, as Mark was saying, then all that's coming that lasts forever, that's what's going to be yours. And so, yes, it, it's, again, it, it's, we're going to suffer. It's going to hurt. Isn't it? When we say this, this does not mean somehow we're happy-go-lucky. It's all, you know, cloud nine. We're bouncing with a you know, spring in our step and smiling, laughing. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's all happy in that sense, but it does mean we understand that this is, even if it lasts for 50 years, it's a small blip on, on, a, on the radar screen of history. Like what's coming for the believer is so much more and eternal, never ending, never, never diminishing, never losing its luster. It's so, going to be so good. Th- I totally agree. Let, let's look at the context here. Again, verse 9 of Revelation 2. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now listen to this. And the slander or the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So just a a little historical background for a moment here. So at this moment, you ready for historical background? Okay, 
Papa Fred, you're always ready for historical <laughs> background. Uh, so uh, at th this moment in the Roman Empire, uh, Judaism was considered a legal religion in the Roman Empire, which meant they had legal protection so that a Jewish person did not have to offer sacrifice to the emperor as a deity, as a god. And the Jews gave their lives for this, and so the Romans said, okay, we'll leave you alone. We'll let you guys be your own little weird group, monotheists, right? That, that's strange. That you're not going to worship our Roman gods. We'll let you guys do that. And so all across the Roman Empire, if you were a Jew, you did not have to worship the Roman gods, including the emperor. And that was a huge, huge blessing to them, Okay. Now, when Christianity was first born, it was considered a sect of Judaism because all the first Christians were Jews and they were following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who was a Jew and all, you know, that was what they were doing. So for the early decades of Christianity, Christianity was considered a part of Judaism and it was considered legal religion in Rome. So you didn't have to worship the Roman gods if you were a Christian because you were considered under the Jewish banner. Does that make sense? So then with Nero, there's some issues that happen in the 60s. And as you get closer into Domitian's reign, more and more Christians are starting to be seen as a separated group from Judaism. So here's what I think is happening in this text. It says that there was slander from those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, that's, by the way, if someone says it's unchristlike speech, Jesus is talking, okay? He calls it a synagogue of Satan. And then he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw you into prison, which leads to death. Now, do you see what's happening? If you put it together, it's pretty clear. The, there was a large Jewish population in this city of Smyrna, and they were not like, most of them were rejecting the Jewish Messiah, sadly, right? The majority. So what were they doing? The large group. They don't like the Christians. So what do they say? Hey, Romans, they're not part of our group. They are not Jews. They're not true Jews. This Christian group is a false sect. It's not part of Judaism. So guess what? As soon as they slander them and say that, Christians are now popped out from underneath the Jewish exemption, and now they're in an illegal religion, and now they can get in big trouble like prison and death. And so Jesus looks at this group of people, and this is the irony of the, the letter to Smyrna. There's all these ironies, right? You say that you're poor, but you're really rich. That's irony. Well, here, these people say that they're the true Jews and that you guys are not really God's people. What's the irony? They're not really true Jews. You guys are truly God's people. The believers in Christ are truly Abraham's sons in Christ. So it's exactly the opposite of what they're claiming. The, 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 where was Israel really going? It was going into Christ, right? It was going into what God had in the future. So in this moment, there's irony, but this is going to lead to persecution. And behind it is Satan. And it says they're going to be tested for 10 days. And then the, uh, they have to be faithful unto death. Let me say one thing, and I want to get you guys on the 10 days. A lot of people pointed to Daniel's testing for 10 days. Do you remember in Daniel 1, the food? He refused to eat the king's meat. And he said, what? Test us for 10 days and see if we're not healthier than everybody else. Remember that? And why would there be an allusion here, testing for 10 days is an allusion to Daniel. Why would we be alluding back to Daniel? Daniel and his three friends were the ones willing to give their lives to, the, uh, to not worship pagan deities. Remember, that's the whole thing. Thrown into the fire, uh, fiery furnace and into the lion's den, they are not going to bow the knee to Caesar, right? They're not going to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar or the other uh, deities. Daniel is the perfect choice to go back to and say, be inspired by the story of Daniel, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Greg, I want to hear your, uh, I like the, the idea possibly of the 10 days and a thousand years. Yeah, so... We all know we love like Second Corinthians chapter four, where it talks about you know our. Let me let me turn there so I don't mess up the uh, what I'm saying here. Second um, Corinthians chapter four, we've quoted this a lot. I know Jerry, you know, along with Romans eight twenty eight, I think he this comes out of his mouth a good bit too. You know, starting in verse uh, sixteen. And by the way, that that's a compliment. That's a good thing. 
Um, some, some of these things bear repeating uh, a lot. It says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we know in some way, whatever we go through in this world, the, the blessing, the reward that we get in the presence of Christ is going to be exponentially greater in comparison to whatever we suffer and lose here. So it's like if you get negative 10 in this life, you get like 50 million, mm-hmm. you know, reward in the presence of Christ. That's worth it. It is. And so what's interesting here, and again, numbers and revelation matter. Um, and and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm stretching this too far. Um, I'm not going to say this was absolutely for sure in John's mind when, when he was writing this or when Jesus said this, but 10 days in prison unto death. And then you fast forward to Revelation chapter 20. And regardless of your perspective on, on what that thousand years is, I think this would hold. You, you suffer and die 10 days. You're raised to life to reign with Christ for a thousand years. So the, the earthly experience of suffering, pain, and death is far outweighed. So you got 10 days of tribulation, a thousand years to reign with Jesus. You see that? That, that, I think that's, that's tying into this, whatever we go through here on earth is going to be so swallowed up and overwhelmed by God's blessing and God's love and God's favor that we will experience when we go to be in his presence. Um, and so take heart with that. Um, and you just think about it. When you go through hard things, think God's gonna multiply this in good ways times a million when I get into his presence. Whatever it is, it's, it's gonna be exponentially greater than anything I could imagine what God's gonna do and what I'm going to experience in his presence one day. Yeah, Greg, I love that. I think so much of our energy, mine is, and I'm convicted by this from this passage, is focused on the physical. And uh, 1 Timothy... Um, Four eight four seven four eight have nothing to do with uh, irreverent, silly miss. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For bodily training is of some value. Okay, it's not a bad thing to to be training bodily. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. So I think the the emphasis in Scripture from our Lord Jesus to every First in Scripture is always pointing to the spiritual over the physical. So I think my conviction is that I think in my daily life, I have that backwards. So much of my emphasis is uh, trying to take care of physical things instead of focusing um, on the spiritual things, which far outweighs them all. And if you look at it says Revelation 2 again, if you look at verse 10 one more time, let me read it again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you, so not all of them, some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, that is faithful unto death, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Now now follow this here. First of all, the 10 days of testing, number one, it has a purpose. It's a test. 
to see if your faith is gold that will be refined in the furnace or it's fool's gold that will be burned up, right? Which is it? Is it genuine faith that will come out more purified or is it false faith that will fall away and reject Jesus in the trials? Which is it? So number one, all of our trials have a, have a purpose to test us, to test our faith. And number two, all of our trials have an endpoint, like you so well said. All of our, 10 days compared to a thousand years or compared to eternity, 10 days compared to this much larger amount. And then he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you shouldn't be afraid of death. He's saying you shouldn't be afraid of the real death. The second death is the lake of fire. Revelation 20 is crystal clear on that. The second death is eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. The first death is the death we have here in this life. And Jesus says, you should be afraid of the second death. You, you should do everything you can to avoid perishing in your sin eternally in the second death. But my goodness, once you're, once you're no longer fearing the second death and you're heading to the, the, the second resurrection, the, the full eternal resurrection in Christ, then my goodness, no matter how bad it is now, it's gonna be so outweighed by the glory coming. So don't fear this death. Instead, fear perhaps the second death and do all that we can to avoid that death in the future. Yeah, because you can't avoid the first one, but you can't avoid the second one. You can't avoid, I should say, that they all sound the same in my Nebraska accent. You can't avoid the first one, but absolutely put your hope in Christ and you avoid the second one. Um, I love, and this was, uh, again, probably from the young, he said, the five points of application from this church, pray for the suffering church. Um, and and it's, it's interesting, it sounds like throughout history, about 0.8 of 1%, so almost 1% of believers are martyred. I didn't realize it would be that, that high, but he said that's kind of been been throughout history. Number two, be faithful. Be faithful. Number three, don't fear death, this first death. It's not the end of the road. Number four, basically let your kids go to the 1040 window, right? If your kids want to go to missions, absolutely encourage that. Don't try to hold them back um, from that. And then number five, death is not the enemy. Death is not uh, the, the real enemy. Um, and uh, birth is fatal. We're going to die. And, uh, but, we, but we do know that um, what happens after that is really good. And so I think we need to just have a different mindset in the way we live this, probably a little bit more aggressively than we are for the sake of the gospel. And just to, to we need to wrap up Smyrna, but just I'll read one quick excerpt here. About 60 years after this letter was written, a uh, uh, bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, very well-known early Christian at 86 years old, is about to be put to death. I won't read the whole thing. It's really long. But I'll just read part of it. This comes from church history, from Eusebius. Quote, as the governor, however, continued to urge him and said, so this is, the governor's brought him before a huge crowd of people, and he's telling the 86-year-old Polycarp, renounce Christ and we will not torture you. We will not burn you to death. We won't kill you. Just renounce Christ. Just give, give an offering to Caesar as God. As the governor, however, continued to urge Polycarp and said, swear, and I will dismiss you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, 80 and six years I have served him and he never did me wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king that has saved me? And then the proconsul said, I have wild beasts at hand. I will cast you to these unless you change your mind. Polycarp answered, call them, for we have no reason to repent from the better to the worse, but it is good to change from wickedness to virtue. He again urged him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire should you despise the beast and not change your mind. Polycarp answered, you threaten fire that burns for a moment and is soon extinguished, for you know nothing of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. But why do you delay? 
bring what you wish. And he was burned at the stake. Apparently the wind was blowing and he did not burn quickly enough. So someone stabbed him through with a sword and killed him. But 86 years old, God has done nothing but be good to me for 86 years. How could I now turn and be faithless to him? And he says, basically, bring it on. Bring the beasts on, the fire. I don't care because I'm not facing the eternal judgment to come because of what Christ has done for me. So a wonderful testimony from this very city about 60 years after this is written. Let's move on now to Pergamum. And just on the screen, I, I want to keep you, uh, let me stand up one more time here. So this city here was known for its, its, its uh, many different uh, temples. The Temple to Dionysus is right here. They had one of the most steep amphitheaters in the ancient world. This right here was the altar of Zeus. It was one of the great uh, bragging points of the city of Pergamum. And uh, some people think it is the throne of Satan talked about here. I don't know about that. Uh, and as you look over here, you've got a temple to Athena right here, a temple to the emperor Trajan. And there's maybe four or five other temples in the area. They're going to zoom in here on the uh, altar of Zeus. And what was left of this altar of Zeus was taken down and shipped about a thousand miles away to Berlin. And to this day, you can sort of see the, rem the remnants of it uh, here in the museum in Berlin. So they've sort of reconstructed it. If you want to go to Satan's throne, you can go be your guest. Uh, but uh, yeah, so th there you go. I don't know if this actually is Satan's throne, but th this, this uh, Acropolis area is what is actually called Satan's throne. You can see an artist's reconstruction of what it may have looked like at the time uh, that the letter was written. And just so you can see um, what, what um, Pergamum looked like then and what it looks like now, uh, it's pretty easy to identify. You know, get the bottom of the temple to Dionysus here, the amphitheater uh, to Trajan's uh, Trajan's. Uh, temple there. And then uh, this right here where the trees are, right down here is where the, the altar to Zeus uh, was. And some of the remnants are still there. But th this is ancient Pergamum where Satan's throne was, which I think is a reference to how pagan the idolatry was. There were temples everywhere. It was known for its idolatry in an extraordinary way. And so uh, this kind of worship was prominent uh, in that city. And I'll, I'll just leave this image up there as we go. So Greg, can you start us off with the beginning of uh, Pergamum verse 12? Yeah. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Um, something to keep in mind when we think about the, this two-edged sword imagery. Like a two-edged sword, you know, obviously, you know, literally speaking, cuts both ways. Um, and when we think about the, the sword of, uh, of Christ, his word, uh, which we've established from chapter one and, and other places, you know, it, it has both a convicting and healing power in it. And I think there's an Old Testament reference that I'm not going to remember where it talks about the word that wounds and heals. Um, and so the, the truth is either going to um, convict us and, and bring us back to God or harden us um, and we, we run further from him. Um, but keep that in mind. Like, so these words are meant to convict. They're meant to, to encourage all of those things at the same time. He says, I know where you dwell. So again, he knew, he knows our tribulation. He knows our poverty. He also knows where we are. He knows where we dwell. And if we're in a place like the, the church in Pergamum was, where it is just saturated with false worship, um, similar to the city of Athens in that sense, like there's just so much false worship there. You know, he even says, this is where Satan's throne is. Like I understand he, Jesus is saying, the spiritual forces that are arrayed against you. Like, I think that is so important um, when we think about persecution and suffering for Jesus. Um, we're going to draw from the Apostle Paul here, but our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood. Like, we get so fixated on the human aspect of this, and it's real. It's what, what we encounter. But behind human opposition to God is Satan. 
behind human opposition to the church is Satan. What did Paul say? Ephesians chapter six, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, the, the principles and the authorities, the spiritual powers of wickedness in the heavenly places. Um, our ultimate enemy is not one we see. He is real. He is there. He is just invisible to us, but he is real and he's there. And so behind everything these Christians are going through, we need to take, take um, heart from this and remember in our minds on a regular basis that when human beings come against us because of our faith in Christ, there is satanic motivation behind that. And that's not just trying to score a rhetorical win or, or make like a, you know, a dramatic statement. No, that's literally the truth. There is satanic motivation behind every drop of opposition to the gospel, behind every drop of hatred, animosity, dismissiveness, rudeness, whatever, towards Christians because of our faith in Christ. Satan hates God. He hates Christ, and therefore he hates everyone who is allied with Christ. And so keep that in mind when you suffer so that you don't take out the bulk of your angst on the people themselves. Remind yourself, I need to remind myself, Satan is behind this and I need to pray for, for the power of the gospel in this situation. One, for myself to stay faithful and remember it's more than just this flesh and blood that I'm experiencing and it's more than the flesh and blood that's coming against me. There's so much more going on um, and Satan is the one who's behind it. And jumping off that point, I mean, just we've, we're six verses into our text tonight. Six verses. Satan's been mentioned four times by Jesus. Four times in six verses, either the devil or Satan is mentioned. That's a lot. That's more than I would mention Satan if I was going to be you know, speaking this briefly. And so this, Jesus is emphasizing this to say this is real, something we need to be aware of. Let me say, when we talk about Satan, we're not talking about the cultural caricature that is the cartoonish version of Satan. I, I know you know this, but just let's just think about it. We're not talking about some caricature cartoon version of Satan. We're talking about uh, an angelic spiritual being who makes it his full-time passion to blind people to the glory and goodness and beauty and holiness of Jesus. He wants them bored with Jesus and excited about anything else. He wants, us to be, he wants our, our affections more invested in anything other than Jesus. So if, if making us rich will get us less focused on Jesus, then he wants you rich. If being poor will make you uh, turn away from Jesus, he wants you poor. He doesn't care about your circumstances. He only cares about your affections, whether they're toward Jesus or away, and he is doing all he can with the, with the forces that he has he's been allowed to have to, to work a, away from those things and, and to turn our attention away from Christ. Yeah, and back a few pages, 1 Peter 5, 8 gives us a, a reminder of just who he is and how he operates. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are now being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. So he is roaming around like a roaring lion, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. We need to be aware of him. If you look at verse 13 of Revelation 2, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. This is fantastic. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there's a man, part of their church, whose name was Antipas, uh, who was a converted Christian, and he actually was martyred. He was truly killed for his faith not many years before this was written. Um, 
Okay, this is not like a full-blown recommendation of this author. I don't even know enough about him. I'll just tell you, I I found this a really pleasant and enjoyable book. Not a full-blown endorsement. I don't know Bruce Longnecker well enough to endorse the man who wrote it, but it's called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. And it's a fictionalized story, so beware, it's fictionalized. But he basically takes this one verse and turns it into a book. And he bases it on on a guess, which is, Antipas was named after Herod Antipas. And if he's right about that guess, he can kind of reconstruct an idea of what he may have believed. I'm not telling you theologically this is where you need to go with all your life. Here's all I'm, the reason I'm mentioning this book. He, the author does a great job bringing out the historical context of all that we know of what was happening, and he paints a very realistic historical setting. So it made this time period feel very real to me based on a lot of, uh, of historical background. So The Lost Letters of Pergamum is an interesting book on, on the topic of Antipas. So thoughts about this martyr? Well, I know Sinclair Ferguson, he, he spent a good bit of time kind of speculating a little bit. Because, um, again, we don't know what Antipas, uh, what his job was, what his vocation was. Um, I mean, Ferguson kind of spent some time thinking, what if he was an athlete? Because athletes were, you know, the, the games and everything like that. Um, and it was just like putting it, and again, putting it in like a, a real context, you know, especially like because in, in the U.S., sports is such a big thing. Um, and sports has been politicized, unfortunately, and there's a whole mess going on there. But it's like, you know, Ant- Antipas could have just been like a well-known athlete or something like that, um, that, you know, everybody knows him, everybody likes him, he's part of whatever the team is and, you know, all that. And then this, this decree comes down, you know, you have to, you know, burn incense to Caesar or this, this particular God. And, you know, everybody, oh, Antipas, just come on, man, just, just do it real quick and we'll go on. And, um, and Antipas is like, oh, I can't do that. I mean, that, that's the situation, though, guys. We're finding ourselves in, in this country, a whole lot more um, normally than we ever would have thought. Um, you know, you're just doing your job, living your life, and then something is inserted in that says, hey, you have to, like, pledge allegiance to this. And if you don't, you could lose your job. Um, that's exactly, I think, what happened in this situation. He was just being who he was in the life God had given him, the vocation God had called him to, and they, somebody inserted, hey, no, you're a Christian, well, you, you've got to do this, otherwise you're going to suffer for it. Um, and I think we need to be ready for that because we could be finding ourselves in the same position Antipas did, whatever that situation was specifically to him, um, is simply being a faithful witness to Jesus and saying, I'm not going to compromise, even though my team, my company, my job, uh, my corporation, whatever, they're, they're going to. And if I don't go with them, then that's going to be bad for me. But I'd rather it be bad for me than it is to, to be unfaithful to Jesus. And so I think we just need to be ready. Uh, I mean, I hope it doesn't like become fully widespread, but are, are we ready to, to have our name written down like Antipas was to be called a faithful witness because we didn't compromise. I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question and we have to be willing to say, God, you know, it's easy to talk about, but if that actually came to pass, I lose my job, my livelihood, maybe even people, I mean, people are getting increasingly violent towards Christians as well. You know, I, you know, I, I get beaten, put in the hospital. Am, am I really ready to be called a faithful witness, whatever it takes? And that's so good. This is, this is the crucial thing. Nobody is, I mean, I'm speaking generally, nobody is going to be offended that you say you love Jesus. They're going to be offended that you say you exclusively love Jesus. 
That, that's the exclusivity has always been what made Christianity hated. So if they said, add Jesus to the pantheon, we'll put a little Jesus temple up here behind the, the altar to Zeus, nobody is going to bat an eye. It's like, great, we got another God. Like we got 15 God deities in this city. Let's just add one more. Great. No one's going to have a hard time with you saying you pray to Jesus. They're going to have a hard time when you say, you only pray to Jesus. You only submit yourself to Jesus. The only Lord in your life is Jesus with a capital L. Yes, you have other people who have authority in your life, but ultimately when push comes to shove, there is one Lord of Lords. There is one King of Kings. It's exclusivity that's going to get you in trouble. So when you say, I love Jesus in such a way that I take him at his word and I cannot do what you're asking me to do in good conscience, that's when the trouble happens. That, that's what happens. So it has to be exclusive lordship given to Jesus and Jesus alone. It cannot be Jesus plus, Jesus minus, it's Jesus only, it's Jesus always, it's Jesus all the time. And th that's got to be our central focus. And Antipas clearly, like Polycarp, said, mm -hmm. I, there's, I, I'm not trying to be offensive. My goal is not to just offend. But when it comes to the issue, I've got no choice. He's been good to me all my life. How can I turn against him at the end of my life? Yeah, you have to love that this church, the, the really one thing that they're doing right, yet you hold fast to my name, you did not deny my faith. And so they have some serious problems that we have to talk about here in a second, but uh, they held their witness. Yeah, so let's look here. This is where we get the, the church gets into a little bit of a rebuke, and it's pretty significant, verses 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. you know, it was pointed out with Ephesus, he just says, I have this against you. It was one thing. With this church, it's more than one thing. I've got several things against you. I have a few things against you. You have some there in the church, I'm assuming, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, most of us know Balaam from the story with the talking donkey, right? We know Balaam going, he's hired by the king of Moab to go uh, curse Israel. He goes up on Peor and he looks over and sees the millions of people and he's been paid money and he's going to bring down a curse on Israel. And what happens every time he goes to speak a curse, God forces his words to come out as a blessing. So over and over, he starts, he said, I'm going to curse Israel. Ready? Here we go. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of it. Uh-oh, now I'm predicting Christmas. This is not good. So all, every time he starts to speak, he starts prophesying the future of glory of Israel. He's like, this is not, the king of, the king of Moab is going, why, why did I hire you? This is not working out. We, we know that from Numbers 22 to 24. That's the familiar part of the story. I, I had to go back and do my homework to remember what was really happening. If you look on the screen here, Numbers 25, first three verses, this is, this is the bad news for Israel. So after that, that was Numbers 24 when, when uh, you heard him blessing them. Here's the next chapter. The people began to whore after with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people, the, so the women of Moab, invited the people of Israel, that is, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, that's where Balaam had been, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Now look, God brings a plague. Look what happens, verse 9. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So God is saying, I take idolatry and immorality at the highest degree of seriousness. Now, you may have known that story too. I had honestly I somehow gotten lost in my brain how this works. But look at, you, you go forward several chapters. Numbers 31, 16 gives us an insight on what happened in this scene. It looks back. It says this. Behold these, these are the women of Moab, these, these women, on Balaam's advice. I did not realize that was there. 
on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, the one we just read. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord where 24,000 died. I had missed that phrase. How did the women of Moab get the idea to go in and allure the men and create sexual morality and also syncretism where they started worshiping the Moabite gods? How did that happen? Who initiated that? It was Balaam's idea. So Balaam tried to curse them for money. That didn't work. So he went around and said, okay, if I can't just condemn them outwardly, I'm going to deceive and trick them inwardly. If I can't just outwardly bring down curse, I'm going to go inside. I'm going to send people in to the people and I'm going to create immorality and idolatry. And guess what? That worked. He was highly successful and 24,000 people died from the plague that the Lord brought upon the people. Now, Greg, what does this have to do with with us and the church uh, in the first century? Can we bring this into our our modern day with, with Revelation 2? Well, I think what it does is make us aware that just because we know Jesus and, and we know we're saved, we know we have eternal life, it doesn't mean that we turn our discernment off. It doesn't mean we, we, we just think we're immune to anything bad happening to us. We can be deceived. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we are easily deceived if we think that we can't be. Like, the, the more we think we're above that happening to us, the more susceptible we are. Um, this cries out for discernment. Um, we, 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 we cannot allow ourselves um, to fall asleep and to think, well, we withstood persecution, so we're okay. It was H.B. Charles had a very clever way of saying this. Um, he said, if, if, he, if Satan can't get you through persecution, then he'll go after you through perversion. Mm-hmm. So if he can't persecute you, into apostasy, he'll pervert you into apostasy, meaning pervert your faith and your worship. And that's exactly what, what happened to Israel. That's exactly what is happening here. They, well, you know, we withstood persecution. We were faithful. We didn't deny the faith. Um, but now through a different means, Satan is going after them. And unfortunately, this tends to catch people more than the persecution does. Um, what, 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 you know, we can resist that outer pressure to conform, but then when he starts appealing to those things that are within that sin will so easily latch onto and, and draw out our desires after these things, that's a whole different battle. Because if someone says, renounce Jesus, I mean, there's such a, such a disgusting feeling that you have about that. But man, so Satan, for, for a lot of us in this room, Satan may not ever do that mode of attack with you. Because He's going to lose, perhaps, perhaps, right? We hope, right? We pray that, that, that we, we never do that. So Satan goes, let's go more subtle. Let's go around the back. Let's come in the side door and let's just say, okay, how about let's use entertainment and uh, let's use entertainment that has highly charged sexual imagery. Can we get Christians to justify watching it? Easy. Okay, now it's in the door. We just got sexual morality into the, how do we get sexual morality into the church? The church was standing firm against all the, the, the you know, this, is, this is Pride Month. You know, the church is standing firm. We're not going to give in to all that stuff. Okay, then compromise what they watch on Netflix tonight. I, I got them. They may, not, they may not wear a Pride t-shirt walking down the street, that, you know, but I can get them to watch this show and we know the scene and this other scene's in it. And man, all, suddenly it's, it's all, all this lustful stuff is going on inside and I've, I've got them. So who cares if they're not wearing a pride shirt? They're watching Netflix, right? So Satan is going to come around the back door through entertainment, social media, our screens. And he's going he's to bring lust, which is the topic here, sexual morality. Lust is going to come through the screen, right? I mean, I mean, how many failures have we seen and heard mm-hmm. lust coming through the screen? So it, it may not be coming through a parade that you're out, a part of, but it may be coming through the, the side door. So Balaam is a great lesson here. He's not coming over our heads. He's coming around the corner. It's, it's a tricky, deceptive uh, act. And how applicable Smyrna 
we saw kind of a um, materialism almost, even though you're poor now, you don't remember you're rich. It doesn't matter about the money. And sexual immorality. Oh, isn't that our Hebrews, I mean, uh, Ephesians 5, 3. Don't let there be a hint of sexual immorality. We have got to stand firm um, against this. What we listen to, like what you're saying, what we watch, what we think about, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we see how serious this is here. And we need to, because um, we've been lulled to sleep, I'm afraid, by just what you're talking about, Mark. And Robert Gagnon, who's a great scholar on, on sexual issues, Gagnon said this, because sexual sin offers so much pleasure, it's an area we're most likely to be deceived. Because where the promise of pleasure is greater in our mind, the more likely our brains are to justify it. That's the way this works. That's why David's walking on the roof and he sees Bathsheba and there's a line of, 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 of sinful argumentation he's no doubt going through to try to rationalize the unrationalizable, like the, the stuff that is illogical. He's trying to create a pathway for that and that, that's not gonna work. We've gotta be on guard on all that kind of stuff. Well, and we also need to understand, remember, Satan is behind those things. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy me and he will go after us in, in any number of ways. I don't remember where I read this. I don't remember um, who the author of this was, but it was dealing with explicit images and videos and the whole billion-dollar industry, billion-plus-dollar industry that is associated with that. And they quoted a lady who was involved in that. And this was one of the most sobering things I ever heard as a as a man, as a husband. And I think you could reverse it, um, you know, for ladies as well. But she said, "One of my goals is to make men hate their wives." I mean, you, what's one of the purposes of, of what all the explicitness that we see? Satan, what is one of Satan's goals for men? Make you hate the women, the, the woman that God has for you. Because the more you give yourself mentally, emotionally to the things you see the, and, 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 and you enjoy that and you indulge your mind and your heart in that, it's going to be that much harder to love as Christ loved the church for you to love your wife. It just is. This stuff makes it very hard to truly love our spouse the way God calls us to because our head and our emotions are filled with so much that should not be there. Um, and by the way, none of us has a right to any other person and their body but the one God has for us in marriage. We have no right to see, enjoy, delight in any other person but the one God has for us. We need to preach that to ourselves. We need to preach that to ourselves every day because the world is saying, enjoy, 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 enjoy. Even if you don't do anything, enjoy as much as you can. It doesn't hurt to look, take a second look. You know, as long as you don't say how, it's okay to say wow, right? No, no, it's not. That is sin. The, the moment we give even a, a slice open to that, we are opening ourselves up to the perversion and the corruption of our souls. We have to fight this with everything we got. So let's move in here to the, I want to give these two last uh, promises here. Really one conjunction of promises. Look, look with us at verse 16 and 17. These are the last uh, statements here to this church. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, 
with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's, there's all kinds of debate about what all the details of this refer to. I'm not sure personally what everything is referring to here. Here's what I know. What Jesus is offering us is some kind of great uh, knowledge of God and intimacy with God that we obviously would forfeit otherwise. And he's saying there is a future with God that is so much better than whatever you are giving up in the here and now. Just to go back to the opening diagram here on the screen, at the very end, to the one who conquers, I'll give you a heavenly reward. And if you have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, you need to hear. So if we do have, if we're hearing with our physical ears what's being said, we need the, the, our heart to be open and receptive to the message. And here's the great news. If they repent, if any of us repent, there's full and free forgiveness mm -hmm. because of what Christ has done. Uh, there is no fear of the second death because hell no longer awaits us because all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross for all who will trust in him for salvation. And there is like total cleansing. Even, even years of sinful, wicked habits that seem unbreakable, God can break by his grace. He can change your life. He really can. What seems impossible and unable to be defeated in your life, it is not so. God has the grace that is sufficient to help you conquer any of those habitual sins and temptations that you might struggle with or give into. And sin does not have to get the last word in your life. It doesn't. You don't have to say, well, 30 years from now, it's not going to be different. It's just going to be worse. You don't have to say that. If you will simply humble yourself, turn to Jesus, he will lavish you with grace and strength and power and joy so that you have something better in him than what you're giving up in the sin that you renounce. So Jerry, can you, uh, or you can yeah. give us a closing well, no, word. Just a, and even then after that to say, you can forget what's behind and press on toward what's, a, what's ahead. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you pray for us? Yes, sir. Father, we are very grateful for your forgiveness. Lord, who of us has not... Uh, sin in all of these ways, multiple ways. Um, Lord, we would confess that. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive those sins. You have cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that we have now traded in all of our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ, um, who has imputed that into our bankrupt account that is now flooded um, with righteousness. And Lord, we... Um, want to respond to that with um, great joy and that we would tell everybody we see about the gospel um, for what you've done and how you've done it. So, Lord, we pray that we would realize that no matter what our bank account, we're rich and that we would flee sexual immorality um, and we would take these warnings um, and um, commands uh, very seriously as we head throughout our week in Jesus' name.